This is the Good Things Guy podcast with myself, Brendan DeCute, South Africa's very own Good Things Guy. I'm on a mission to change what the world pays attention to. I truly believe that there's good news all around us, and I spend my time hunting down and reporting on the best good news stories from South Africa and the world. In the Good Things Guy podcast, you'll meet these everyday heroes and hear their incredible stories. Wendy Nola is arguably South Africa's most experienced consumer journalist. She's helped more consumers over her 20-year career in consumer journalism than she can count. She's even helped me. A couple of months ago, (laughs) I drove into a tire dealership with what I thought was a simple puncture. I ended up driving out with four brand new, very, very expensive tires. And when Wendy got involved, I realized that I didn't need to rebond my house and I actually just needed to pay for one tire. (laughs) which is insane. I featured it on a show with Wendy where we spoke about all of these things, but today I have the honor of having her on my Good Things Guy jackpot. Wendy, welcome. Thank you, Brent. I suppose I'd be the, the bad things woman. The bad things bad things girl. Bad things <laughs> guy, girl. girl. Good, okay. good things guy, bad things girl. girl. Uh, I shot past girl a few decades ago, but I'll, I can live with girl. Wendy, it must be odd to be on the other side of the mic being interviewed. because generally very the, odd. Generally the shows are centered around um, your thoughts and, and consumer journalism. And, and I'm asking the questions. Correct, correct. Yeah. But obviously this is my show. So first and foremost, how did you get into journalism? Journalism. Gosh, funnily enough, when I was in high school, one of my best friend's mom was Colleen Shearer, and she wrote a consumer column for the Sunday Tribune called Talking Shop. And I was fascinated by her work. I'd watch her and a little typewriter. And sometimes I'd even, during the holidays, we'd go to visits. I remember going to visit a bread factory with her. Somebody had complained about finding something odd in their bread. And the company had invited her to come and look, as they do, I've discovered over the years, to come and look, you know, have a, a tour of our facility kind of thing. And I'd been thinking of journalism at the time. She sort of encouraged me. We'd exchange letters, there was no email or WhatsApp or anything. Then we'd, we'd sort of write to each other a lot and use the friend as a, as a, as a courier. So I thought, right, uh, that's set. I was really good at English and really awful at everything else pretty much at school. But my father, who's a businessman, was like not having any of that. I mean, it was sound advice. He said, go to university, get a BCom. And then you can get to the top of whatever field. He just didn't understand journalism I'm, at all. I'm smiling because that is the standard in, I think, every generation, is that yeah. the folks always go, go out there, get some sort of degree, and then you can do whatever you like, as long as you've got that backing. Yeah, that backing. And, well, I had a gap year because I wasn't convinced. I didn't know what I wanted to start. Become didn't appeal. Um, I supported myself during that year. I did a typing and, and shorthand course, which is probably the most useful course I've ever done in my life. And then I was like, okay, he was still dead against the journalism thing. Anyway, I, went, I did try the BCom, uh, passed um, language and communication and economics, I think, and that was it. And then I quietly went off and without telling him I applied for journalism at the then Natal Technicon. And um, I got in, I'd been two years out of school by then. And I said, you know, if you don't want to pay for it, I'll waitress or something, but this is what I want to do. So I was now third year out of school. Which was great because I was really committed. I really wanted to get on with it. And I, from the first day, I knew I'd found my home. And that was it. You speak about your hero and, and the person that you sort of looked up to when it came to consumer journalism. But did you immediately go into that no, after no, no. There was nobody. She'd, at the time I um, got into journalism, she'd retired. And there was nobody, and certainly in, in KZN, doing it. And... 
There was Squint Girl writing for the Sunday Times. So I'd been in journalism for over 10 years. Uh, from 1995 was my first job. So when I was on maternity leave with my first child in 1998, 21 years ago, I got called by the editor and one of the other editors to say they'd done some focused research with readers and they really wanted a consumer column. They wanted consumer information and critical thinking around it and advice and somebody to take up their cases like Colin Sherry used to do in the Tribune. And they thought that I was a good candidate. And I was like, actually, that makes a lot of sense when I think about what it was that made it. Exactly. That was pretty much it. I wrote my first column. Of course, I had no complaints. The opposite problem I have now. I had zero complaints. Now I have more than I could possibly ever deal with. And I started my first column in the Mercury was about a personal experience of our house being tented. I lived in the Bora Belt in Durban, so we get these wood borers that just eat your ceiling timbers and everything else, and you have to have your house tented. So we bought this house, and it had apparently been tented by the seller, which is legal requirement, and they'd go on through the whole show of it. But they hadn't actually put methyl bromide, I think it is the gas that does the, the killing, to put it bluntly. And so I had this newborn baby in the crib at the foot of the bed and there'd just been these stories about rats eating newborns' fingers and toes and and government hospitals and whatever and this rat ran over us in the bed. And I didn't make the link immediately but my mother said that there's no way that your house was tented. There was no way that the gas was put in. And so we had to move out again, just moved in with this newborn baby, all the food, everything else, and have it redone. That was my first column. And then you say, please write in or a nurse. I think I used to take phone calls, which I can't quite believe. And then I wrote a second column for the Daily News and on it went. And 21 years later, it's still as exciting to me now as it was. Well, 21 then. years later, and, and you speak about um, when you first started that you were, you were searching for stories and yeah. you weren't getting the complaints. I've seen your social media feed. And if there is anything that is happening, that is out of bounds or that should be looked into. People tag you. They know who you are. Well, that's the thing. So they they began by phoning me and then it was emailing. Um, Well, it was always emailing, but there were phone calls as well and I had to put a stop to that. It's just unmanageable. And um, now it's send an email off my Facebook page or go into my website and send an email from there. And then it's much easier. So they'll tag the company that they've got a gripe against and then they'll just put at Wendy Nola. And then it's like, <laughs> sometimes I... Most times I respond. The company also freak out there. They're uh, like, oh gosh. What it's if, her. What, oh, why are they getting off? <laughs> Wendy Nolan, no. <laughs> no. Yeah. So, and then just more platforms. So radio became a thing for me thanks to East Coast Radio. In early 2004, I was approached to do a, a radio version of what I was writing for the Daily News, but there was some cooperation between the two brands. And that's how it started. I was really bad. Really Really bad. I I, thought I I had to have a special voice. (laughs) (laughs) You're making me laugh because um, so I I fell into this career Mm. and my first radio opportunity when I was put on air, I had a list of about 12, maybe 12, 14 questions. Overprepared and now you haven't got one for me today. No, no. I mean, I want to hear your story. And Mm. and what I've realized in in the time uh, that I've been doing this is everybody has a story and everybody has an opinion that matters. And my job as a host is to listen to that. Like, what do you want to talk about? And let's talk about it because that's the truth. But when I did my first radio show, I had these questions and it was it was the daftest thing. I was like, um, where did you grow up? Yes. What did you? And it just. Now onto the next question. I sort of 
listening so much for the answer. Just so bad. I, I actually, I listened to that show maybe once um, after that, and then I asked the internet to delete it. To which they didn't. Uh, didn't you know? It's not going. No, anywhere. it's, it's there. still it's, there. I mean, when I'd been ten years on East Coast Radio, we played some of those. Uh, just a few Did clips you from ours, totally. But it's part of the journey. It's part of your your authenticity. So, yeah. so that's as you would have discovered. People value authenticity. So I could. Um, when I first moved down to Cape Town, some one of the seasoned hosts said uh, something about on air. I was um, offering some comment on a consumer issue, and he said, um, "Oh, he hadn't realised I'd moved down here because I used to come down once a month." And he said something about, "Oh, for some reason, Wendy Nola is still in the building." But yeah, you know, I said it's because I've moved here. And he went, "Oh, really?" And then at the end of the, <laughs> the segment, he said. Well, now we've just got to do something about your Durban accent. <laughs> <laughs> I just laughed. I said, no, I've got my indie number plate still. Because, I mean, me trying to be Cape Town, whatever that means, it would come across, you know, I just wouldn't be real. And I think people, you know, however my accent sounds to a particular segment of the population, it's mine. And, I ha- and, and whoever we are, whatever our background is, be yourself. And I think it's something that comes across so strongly in the work you do, Brent. Is, Thank you. Is Thank to you. own your... Be happy with yourself. Be proud of you as you are. We've all got our unique stories and gifts and challenges and all the rest. So authenticity is that's something that I've learned is to just be me. Don't try to be someone else. Well, you, they've, you, they've already taken. Just you, be me. You definitely are you and you've <laughs> forged a path that people know what you do. And again, tag you and tell, want you to tell their stories. What is one of the most successful stories when it comes to you digging deep and bringing out the consumer journalism, if you look back? <sighs> the one story that comes to mind, and, I, and I, I don't know why, but in a way I do, it's easier to dig in the age of social media because you put something out there and people just flood and tell you their experiences. But I worked on a story, a motoring story, because I was a motoring journalist for a long time as well. I don't do the test driving so much anymore, but I, I love it. I, I'm a real petrol head. It's a passion. So, so stories that involve motoring and consumerism are my absolute This is why Wendy picked up my tire story. Yeah. <laughs> Not only, but it helped. And um, anyway, so there were these little coarser lights. I don't know if you remember those. I drove one. Okay. I know exactly oh, what you're okay. talking about. So the official word for the glass at the back, you've got the windscreen in the front, it's, the, it's called a backlight, right? So I think it was 2005, around there, 2006, I got a complaint from a woman in Durban about the fact that she had been driving along the freeway and heard this, this explosion in the context of South Africa, it was like, who's shot me? Who's thrown a stone from a bridge? What's happening? Terrified. And there was just no, she, you know, she pulled over and there was no um, immediate, no apparent cause rather. And she ended up at her dealership. And there was another person there with the same thing. But oh, the gosh. dealership was saying, oh, well, you have to claim on your insurance and whatever. And I, I, I can't remember what maybe, I think I wrote the story at that time. And then two other people, my, my columns appeared in, in newspapers, Star, Cape Times, Pretoria News, Daily News. So there was a national platform there. And I got two or three others and I wrote that up. And of course, I was going to the manufacturer and they were saying, we don't know what it is. It's not, it's just coincidence kind of thing. And after those columns, remember now there's no Twitter, Facebook is not a big thing. 
Then I got a, like 10 more. And so it's, and I started to write these stories. And I documented and spoke to or emailed at least over 300, something like 350 people. Some people, it had, had happened twice. I remember twin brothers had got these ca- a car each on their 21st birthday, and it had happened to both of them. And ah, was that a coincidence? eventually, through the weight of this evidence, the manufacturer had to dig deep with its glass supply, eventually said, yes, it actually is a fault. And to this day, if one of those cars, because they obviously then tried to get hold of everybody and whatever, but when cars are sold on and on, it's difficult, and you're not getting your car serviced at the manufacturer's brand or whatever. If it happens every now and then, I think I got one earlier in this year, they can go to the dealership and get it replaced free of charge. And of course, the, all the insurance companies were now saying, but hold on, why were we paying to replace yeah. these windscreens? And then of other people, of course, who had didn't have insurance and then had to pay. And it's expensive to replace, especially more than once. So um, that whole story took me about nine months to get to the point where they acknowledged that there was a real issue here. Whereas now, it would take a week <laughs> because of the power of social media. It just The Me Too would just happen so much faster. So I think I'm proud of that because of the fact that I really had to work hard and long at that story and, you know, pre-social media to get the result. Has social media, obviously it has changed journalism, but has, Completely. It, has it made it easier or more difficult? And my question here is because... All of a sudden, every single person with a cell phone believes that they are a newsbreaker. Yes. So it's changed, it's changed the game completely. Has yes. that made it easier or more difficult? A bit of both, I have to be honest. As an old school journo, when we you know, studied the profession, we qualified, we have to answer to the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa. We have to answer to the press. Um, this is a big deal. We have to follow certain ethical principles and procedures. We let the other side be heard, report in an ethical, fair, fair, balanced manner, fear of favor. You can't take money from anyone, obviously. But social media has completely blurred those lines. So for the first time in my 20-year career, people are now regularly on a weekly basis when I respond to them, they email me or you know, I respond to them on Twitter, whatever they ask me immediately. So thank you so much for responding. But what, am, what is your help going to cost me? And that tells me that they don't understand what journalism is as opposed to stuff that goes on on other platforms, social media. And that saddens me mm-hmm. because it's such a, I mean, it's, it's who I am. It's, it's such an important profession to keep governments and corporates and everyone else honest and critical thinking, et cetera, et cetera. It underscores who we are as, as societies. And but yet people don't understand what it's about, how it works and what guides us. On the other hand, important stories for me are on Twitter. So people complaining about service they've got. People, if Vodacom goes down or MTN, uh, it's all instant. It it's will all, be all there, and then I follow up, and then I, you know, I will use some of them as case studies to support the the emails that I'm getting. Hello, Peter's become huge. So if I'm seeing a trend in my inbox, I go on, and sure enough, the trend will be reflected there. So I think social media has given consumers a voice that they never had a platform. When I first started in consumer journalism, these companies would contain complaints in their call centers in the email inboxes, letters, people would write letters still. And it was easy for them to say, as in the course of light case, oh, it's it's only you, no, we're not seeing this trend. And companies don't have the power and the ability to do that anymore because everything's out there on social media. It's also given consumers more access to what's going on in other markets with the same products and with cell phones and, and whatever and travel products and that kind of thing, airlines. So 
the power imbalance was, you know, the companies up here and consumers down there. And I think there has been a lot of inevitable abuse by consumers where they've lodged stuff on a public platform that isn't necessarily fair or or, or true or, or, was it, or true or was it, it's exaggerated or whatever for personal gain. But I do think that that is starting to equalize now. It's starting to mature and that you'll see other consumers coming on and correcting and saying, yeah. actually, that's not fair or give them a chance to respond or whatever. And that is very lovely to see what it has done and what being on more platforms and traditional and social media has done is just made my inbox a monster that I cannot ever tame. <laughs> and and I have a guilt around that. I have a stress, huge yeah. stress, but I also have a guilt in that people will say, oh, Wendy, you know, write to Wendy Nola or tag her or whatever, she'll help. But I don't have the capacity to even open all the emails, let alone take up every case. I just, I have six well, you're, deadlines you're, a week. And you're and, one person. And I'm one, you know, people say, well, dear Wendy and your team, and I'm like, ha ha, really? <laughs> <laughs> My team of one, thanks. So I do the best I can, but I always live with that stress and the guilt of not being able to do enough for enough people. Well, I have to tell you, when it when it came to, I'm not going to call my situation a case because it wasn't a case. It was a, and you were quite capable of actually sorting it out on your own. Truth be told, it was a it was a happening. That's yes, a good word. an incident. An incident. And um, the tire, I drove into a tire company. Uh, I went in with, with what I thought was one flat. They really took me, they took the mickey over me. And I was just, I was sort of going there. You should talk about that a little bit. They said that your insurance company oh, insisted terrible. on you yeah. getting this and that and a particularly premium brand. Yeah. And a lot of consumers, just not your specialty. How do you know, especially with cars, it's very technical. And so you do what you think is the right thing and you've been ripped off. And I love those stories because knowledge is power. So your story then, by doing your story, we're able to in, increase awareness among the motoring population and say, you know, don't take it at face value. Do your own research. Well, you, you, you speak about how social media is able to um, bring people together that have had the same situation. Totally. So I put that up onto my Facebook. And you got so many Me Too's. Oh, my gosh. There were worst so stories. many worst stories of people that had gone to the same dealership and they'd been completely um, taken the mickey of. And, and really, there was a woman who used her Christmas bonus to um, put new tires. Doing the right thing. Doing the right thing, trying yes. to be safe. And they'd, they'd been spun the same story about your insurance won't cover your car if you don't have the same. Yeah. exact tires on and we need to redo all four and, and whatever and um when you contacted me at that point is when everything came to the fore and and you got um the owner of the company on the show and we had a candid discussion yes and and that's the point right is that then there had to be repercussions the gentleman who had served me suddenly resigned yeah. he, he decided he needed to leave and now there's a more watchful eye over their stores i saw the other day mark pilgrim had the same problem Did with he? his wife at the same store i didn't oh no so talk about well and uh, and yes but then it got dealt with immediately they phoned him uh, and they were like i cannot believe this uh, we'll sort it out and that's what's wonderful because that is that's what i'm talking about that's the good of social media and that companies can't get away with dodgy dealings anymore. And it, you don't have to have a consumer journalist to turn to or a consumer ombud or whatever. They, we all fulfill valuable roles, but every consumer has the power now, an extra public platform, to serve them, to get awareness. And not, not just for many people, it would be self-serving, but the example then helps 
so many other people. And Completely. that's what I love about it. Tell me, your writing and, and your journalism took you overseas for a while. You went overseas for a little bit, did you? Oh, yeah, before my consumer journalism days. Consumer journalism has fulfilled me in every possible way, professionally. But that was wonderful. That was pre-children and all of that. I was Where did you go? London? London. I was posted to the London Bureau as it then was as the foreign correspondent for the what was called the Morning Group. So it was an alliance of different newspaper groups. So it was Business Day, it was uh, the Mercury, Cape Times, it was the Herald and the Dispatch. I was in my early 30s and I got to work in the city and cover a lot of stuff from Buckingham Palace tea parties to the trade negotiations in Brussels about South Africa to Wimbledon to the Chelsea Flower Show. And then I would track down South Africans who had just done wonderful things in the arts and all sorts of fields and write features on them for the papers back home. I just absolutely immersed myself in the whole thing. And How long uh, were you there for? Well, that's the thing. It was supposed to be two years, but it ended up being 13 months because the rand was plummeting. Can you imagine eight rand to the pound? Oh. I thought that was just too horrendous <laughs> for words. They actually predicted that by the end of the year it would be 20, and it took a lot longer than that. We're still not quite there, but... Um, close. So close. they, yeah, twenty uh, something years later, but they closed the office down. I was the last secondi in the office that had been going since the war, since the end of the war, since the forties. But it was an absolutely invaluable experience. I feel very lucky to have gone and done that. The reason I ask is because travel always gives one perspective, and it gives one perspective about what is happening over our oceans and different parts of the world, and it gives you a better understanding of what's happening right here. And it's funny you should mention, because I do a lot of talks with corporates and customer service issues and, and whatever, and how they're doing on social media and that kind of thing. And the one story I tell from my time in England that's relevant is around culture, company cultures, and how we assume a culture. If we go into a new environment, we assume the culture without realizing it, and best you understand which culture you're aligning yourself with and whether it's going to serve you and the company or not. The story I tell is I, I arrived on the 1st of Jan and I think Monday was the 3rd or something. Bought my long black coat. Working in the city, it was a uniform. My long black boots and gloves and the whole toot. And I would wear my uniform. And the point is every month I had to go, it was a weird thing, I had to go into Piccadilly Circus to a particular bank, withdraw my salary in cash and then walk across the street to my bank and deposit it. That was just weird. So every month I would do that. So January I did it, February I did it, March I did it, April. I got stopped by a tourist. Now, Piccadilly Circus being it's, it's tourism mad. central. Yes. For, for those of you that haven't been, Piccadilly Circus is like the center, center part uh, of London. Absolutely. And there's just millions of people Constantly. that are milling around, and walking around. And, yeah, it's mad. Yeah. It's mad. So some tourists asked me for directions. And every single month from then on till, till I came home, that happened. And I worked out years later properly that you can wear the clothes and think that you, you know, I looked like a Londoner, but I wasn't entirely behaving like one, and, and the foreigners could tell this. So I, I think I started walking in a more determined way. I probably stopped making eye contact because we as South Africans do that, and in London you just don't. It was explained to me that it's a personal space. We don't have enough in London, and so we give each other that space, whatever that is. But I, I walked the walk, and I, I had the look, and I, that single-minded, don't mess with me, or whatever. And it was interesting. So it's not enough to wear the clothes and think, okay, I'm living here. This is, but I, I had slowly is taken on the culture yeah. of a Londoner. 
I'll use that to sort of talk about culture as, a, as an example because that was my personal one and it happened without me realizing it. That's insane. I love that. Um, I, when I finished school, I went to America for two years. And um, for the first year that I was there, I always believed that I would, I would move to America. I had this okay. idea that, that like this was it for me. I'm, I'm going to be American. And I loved the whole idea about America. And then I came home for December holidays, Christmas holidays to spend with my family. And I went back over for my second year. And in my second year, I had the greatest revelation. And that was that I didn't understand the culture enough mm-hmm. to be able to be successful in America. And maybe, maybe I would have. But time. at that, at that yeah. 18, 19 years old, I had a, this revelation that I knew I know how South Africa works. Yes. I get South Africans. Yes. I am South African. I understand what you can do and what you can't do. And all and those subtle little things that you can't really You, you can't teach learn anybody or that. teach. Yeah. yeah. And um, I learned that at a, at a young age, and that's when I made the decision to come back and really just give well, South Africa my all. <laughs> that's, that's what they say. Yeah. Um, 2019, consumer journalism, South Africa, we're in a state of flux. It's, um, I don't know if I can say we had a tipping point. I think we've passed that. The country is in a, in a really hard place. Mm. If you're listening to the news every day, if you're on your social media and you're seeing what people are speaking about, what is it like being a journalist and in consumer journalism now? It's tough. It's tough, Brent. I've got to actually cry. The number of emails I get every day are from people who have been retrenched and then others who've been retrenched, taken their, their package and started a business that then failed. Oh, yeah, I say, I say that oh, because it's tough. It's, it's not so easy creating tough. a business. And, and I, they want to repossess the house and it's all we've got. But, you know, I need to pay, this is one I got over the weekend, I need to pay 65,000 Rand by the end of the month. And if I, please help, I, I can't help. They can't afford the house anymore. The husband was retrenched and tried to do some odd jobs, but it's not enough. And they're short paying every month. Or they say, you're my last hope. I get that a lot. And then their last hope can't help them. And I know that I, you know, on a rational level, I say to myself, don't be hard on yourself. There is nothing you or anybody else can really do at this point. But when someone thinks you're their last hope and then you extinguish that last hope, it's horrible because I'm the fixer. That is what makes me get up and I, that's what makes me feel, I don't know if worthy is quite the right word. Your sense but it's of purpose. My sense of purpose, thank you. That's, sense of that's purpose. my sense of purpose. I've had it always. There is no bed. I mean, people, I get sometimes very really large sums of money back for people. A couple of weeks ago, it was 90000 that a bank took out of somebody's account without good reason. Legal reason, actually, and that since it happened on New Year's Eve, and I got the money back for them a couple of weeks ago, and then I thank you. Well, can we send you? We need to send you something. I said, you know what? You probably won't understand this, but I got more out of this than you did. There is nothing like helping people, really helping people tangibly. There is no greater reward for me, and to do that on a regular basis, on a sustained basis, is brilliant. But more than that, even. It's when someone writes to you and they don't often think to do it to say, thank you so much for that column or that radio show because I would have got caught otherwise. And that's what it's really all about. It's more than the one person. It's about empowering people. Knowledge is power. To empower people with the tools to help themselves when they get caught or to do the stuff that's not going to lead them into a situation where they are caught. Um, and I just, I just can't think of any better job in the world really than that. You I do. Just, yeah, I mean, you, you're working in a, a great space. Fantastic um, space. It's what an honor. I mean, the inbox gets me down. I am no, 
um, well, we, we, we need to figure Mother out. Teresa, we, yeah, we, we but need to figure out a way to fix that for you. That, I, I'm going to try oh. and be that fixer. Do you know that starfish story? <laughs> yes. Little girl. So that's what keeps me from going completely Maybe just insane. refresh for the listeners. So I'm probably going to get the details wrong. But completely this little wrong. girl walking along a beach and there'd been a big storm and all these starfish, half dead starfish who'd been tossed onto the sand. And this little girl was walking along and she was picking up as many as she could and tossing them back in the sea. But obviously the sand remained littered with starfish. She was just one little girl doing what she could. And this old man said, little girl, you're wasting your time. You can't possibly make a difference here. And she said, well, I'm making a difference to this one and to this one <laughs> and to this one. And that really is is what I live by, is that don't feel overwhelmed by all those you can't help. Concentrate on the ones that you are helping and just do your best to help as many as you can and just be okay. And I'd like to say that I'm there. I'm not entirely there, but I'm, I'm a lot further along that path than I used to be. Five years ago, when I when started this new chapter of my life and this mm-hmm. journey, the video that I put out that went viral and landed up on wherever it did, the end of the video said, change one thing, change everything. And I okay. still believe that. We have the power in our own hands to make a difference, even if it is just one starfish and one change at a time. And I think also a lot of people do think, oh, what possible difference can I make? What good can I do for little me? And I mean, it's just, it's oh, defeatist thinking. Someone that's relevant right now and making very, very many people angry is Greta. I know. Um, and she's just one little girl and she decided to sit outside. One angry little girl. One that's angry what's making other people girl, angry. Yeah. Uh, that s- decided to sit outside Parliament and because she was worried about climate change for the future. Yes. For her future. And she is. She triggers a lot of people. It's I put up a status that, uh, yes. that said she's triggering, but maybe we need to understand why she's triggering us. And, and it's nothing one, else one is person. working, actually. Correct. And why not somebody who's, not, who's a child, has not reached majority, talking about it? Why are people who aren't going to inherit the problem? You know, the politicians are all old. Yeah. That's exactly no. what it is. If I have to ask, so I know you work in a lot of different industries. If we have to speak to consumers now and, and whatever the industry is, whatever's going on, if they have a problem, if something's happened, what is an advice that you could give them? What is a sort of tip? Social media is there and it's a great tool for us, for the ordinary person who has no power, no access to the top guys, whatever. But I always say, give, be fair, give the company the opportunity to sort it out first. If you then want to still talk about it in the public interest, then you can reflect how they responded. But I, I'm not a fan of going directly to social media. Like going for dinner, that. having a bad meal, and then going online and being yes. like, that was the worst With, restaurant and, and, ever. And when the waiter came around, you and the manager went, oh, fine, lovely, perfect, <laughs> lovely. You know, no, I'm not a fan of that. I don't think that's fair. And I think... I think consumerism works both ways. We have rights, we have responsibilities, and so do the service providers, whoever they may be, car manufacturers, dealerships, restaurants, insurance companies, whatever. So I would say try and fix it within the company first. If you that doesn't work, there are so many options, and you can take you know try one on for size. You can go on social. But I always say do it responsibly. Stick to the facts. Don't use capital letters and 45 exclamation marks. Don't swear. What do they say? If you wouldn't print it on the front page of a newspaper, don't put it on your social exactly. media. So you need to think responsibly about what you're think putting about, out there. And think about yourself being quoted. That's always a good one, you know, in other places. And look, I have to say, with companies, often their social media response team is more responsive than if you email them or phone the call center or whatever. 
But many of them haven't evolved to the point where the people on the, the, the social media team are generally the, the tech-savvy ones. And then they've got to say DM us, and you've seen it a thousand times, and then the decision makers, it's, it's, it's kicked back. But at least you're getting an acknowledgement. I tell companies, be careful of the DM being your only response on Twitter, because if the person wanted it to be private, they would have sent you an email. They think that there's something for other consumers to learn here. So be very careful about being seen as KG or, you know, not, well, you're not You're going to become an example is yes, what's going to happen. you're going to give me another case study. <laughs> so, so I would say if you want to do that or if you want to send an email and wait to see how they respond there before they think it's public and then go public – or you can go to one of the many ombudsmen. The Consumer Goods and Services Ombudsman does a really good job. I would first go into Hello Peter, actually, and see how many other people are complaining of the same things. But that's a very good way. I do that a lot. If I see a trend, as I said in the beginning, I'll go onto Hello Peter to see if it's being echoed there, and nine times out of ten, it is. But I would recommend doing that before you do business with a company. Mm-hmm. Not after you got into trouble. Well, there we go. Like, so do your failure research to prepare first. Is preparation to exactly. fail. Exactly. So consumers now, there's no excuse because we have the tools. So many avenues to get information from that weren't there when I started 21 years ago. So I think it's. I think social media is. I would recommend it, but in a very mature, even-handed way, um, because you get more respect. You get more respect from the company, and you'll get more respect from other consumers for doing an in that way rather than just having an issue and literally while you're in the store rather than telling the manager you're just vomiting it out on social media in a very angry WTF kind of way I'm not a big fan of that I just think for your sake as well you're not going to get the response you want and if you do things in a measured fair way but by all means yes use social media lovely fantastic I mean I spent so many years seeing companies Trying to hide everything. Yes, and not failing to take responsibility and speaking to customers. You know, th- this case is closed. Really, can't do that anymore. Can't do that anymore. Well, we do have the power, um, but the power needs to be used responsibly. Exactly, is, is sort of where we're going here. If I can implore any of my listeners um, to go and, and follow Wendy Nola, I think that uh, what you're doing on social media is very interesting to watch because it also gives me a good indication of what's happening in the consumer market, and also to learn lessons from other people is always great. So your, yes. so your social media is really interesting. It's really been an honour to have you on my show. Oh, Brent, likewise, thank you. And I want to want to thank you for all that you do. You may be overwhelmed with emails, but that's not a bad thing. It's a a very good thing. I wouldn't be able to do the work I do if it wasn't for the fact that so many people from so many walks of life in so many parts of this country with such diverse consumer dramas think to trust me to to help them. So it's a huge honor and privilege, and I hope I have another 20 years at it. I think you will. Remember, I think the crux of this is that we do have the power in our hands um, with social media, but we need to be responsible. And if you really don't have anywhere else to go, go to Wendy Nola because she, she'll be there. She might not get your email immediately, Maybe but she'll get Maybe not your starfish, but I'll try my best. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, this is this week's show and uh, wishing you guys only good things. I'm Brendan Deque, South Africa's very own Good Things Guy, and you've been listening to Good Things Guy, a jackpot podcast. For more episodes or to subscribe, rate, or review my podcast, go to iTunes, Iona FM, or Google Podcasts. Be kinder than necessary to yourself and each other. Thanks, and only good things.